Hello and welcome to the Managing Uncertainty Podcast. This is Brian Strausser, Principal and Chief Executive here at BrightPath. And in episode 156 of our podcast, you know, a number of times we've talked about crisis frameworks and we've talked about leadership in a crisis and we've talked about the things that you have to make sure that are in place from a crisis leadership perspective. And one of the core elements of that is that somebody has to be in charge. Somebody has to be the one responsible for making the decisions or confirming the decisions of your crisis leadership team. When we're building crisis management frameworks for clients, we often uh, craft a structure where there is some type of crisis management team, uh, not the executive team, but you know, kind of reporting into them a group of cross-functional individuals representing subject matter experts and the lines of business. So support teams, SMEs, and the business, you know, lines of business representatives for the organization that gather and collaborate in a crisis, in a disruption, in a business continuity plan activation. It doesn't matter what the crisis is, they're the ones that are on the front lines. We put in that structure two roles, at least the way we look at this. And there are other ways. This is just the way that we tend to do. We have an incident leader. We have an individual uh, with backups who is responsible for being the master of that process. They understand the process. They are the ones who kind of drive the activation. They lead the meetings. They chair the meetings. It's not a decision maker role as much as it is we're coordinating or managing or activating you know, the group and, and helping guide them to consensus. We also put what we refer to as the responsible executive, or sometimes it's the on-call executive or the responsible senior leader, I think we just did for one of our clients uh, recently, uh, to align with their kind of cultural terms that they use. That is the decision maker in the crisis management process, and they're the conduit back to the executive team along with the incident leader. So they're the ones that go and brief them on the decisions that need to be made. And we have found over time, based on our experience and our own experience working in Fortune 500 sized organizations, this is a very efficient structure. Um, there are some other ways that we approach this based on unique situations, but this is generally kind of the model that we follow that has worked well. But at the end of the day, somebody has to be in charge. And so we define that very clearly in the crisis management framework and plan. This is who has decision-making rights. These decisions are reserved to the executive team, usually related to certain resource commitment or reputational campaign approval, uh, external messaging, those kind of things. And then here are some decisions that are reserved to the board. Now, if you have private equity owners, it's a little different. Um, but in a publicly traded company, there's a board of directors, and they have responsibility for certain things according to how the governance of that organization is set up. For example, uh, in an organization I used to work in, uh, you know, the board reserved responsibility from a crisis standpoint around two things. Uh, one was um, CEO and senior executive succession was the responsibility of the board, and that was something that we talked about. Uh, regularly. Not that I knew the answer to that question, but I understood the mechanism we would follow if there was an issue. Um, and second, that that organization wanted the board to approve uh, any capital expenditure over $50 million. I think it was at the time. It's probably gone up now. This was a decade ago. So we define that. We, we capture that in the crisis process. 
So I tell you this to talk about two recent stories in the news that illustrate that even years and decades after the introduction of the incident command system and how we've approached that in the private sector through good crisis frameworks and plans that are kind of modeled on the principles of the incident command system, we continue to learn hard lessons about why this is important. And so I want to talk about two news stories related to this briefly. Uh, last week, in the Navy Times, the uh, newspaper of the United States Navy, basically they cover Navy and Marine Corps activities. Uh, there's a headline uh, on Friday, July 15th, Vice Admiral and two others punished for USS Bonham Richard fire. Uh, you might be familiar with this, but the Bonham Richard is a uh, large amphibious ship. It, it looks like a mini aircraft carrier, but it primarily houses Naval and Marine Corps aviation along with um, it's the centerpiece of an amphibious strike group, an amphibious ready group, I think they're called now, uh, centered on being able to land a reinforced Marine Corps battalion on a hostile nation's shores or through the air if necessary. Uh, these are large ships that cost billions of dollars. And in July 2020, um, the amphibious assault ship Bonham Richard was in heavy maintenance in San Diego when a fire started. This fire has since determined to be arson, but the fire, which is one of the tragedies, one of the disruptions that the Navy plans for because it can lead to the loss of the ship and significant loss of life. And that is what happened here. This ship was destroyed in this blaze. While the ship was under maintenance, this fire started on July 12th, 2020, and it took multiple days for the Navy to get this fire under control. There, of course, was an investigation into what happened and what can we do with the ship, and the, ultimately, the decision was made to scrap the ship. It's, there's simply too much damage, which is a pretty significant loss to the Navy to lose a capital ship like this in a, in a, in a shore fire, basically. But the lessons here from an incident command perspective were even more interesting because nobody knew who was in charge. There's a lot of finger pointing in the case, and we'll link the article in the show notes, but the ship's under maintenance, so is the commanding officer of the ship in charge? Is the maintenance activity in San Diego in charge? And then there's multiple admirals here. There's the commanding officer's boss, there, he has an administrative boss and an operational boss. Um, there's also a, a, an admiral in charge of the base. There's an admiral in charge of the Navy region uh, that the base is in. And there's an admiral over in the maintenance situation here. So th there was a lot, there's a lot of finger pointing over what happened. And ultimately, the head of the United States Pacific Fleet uh, meted out a lot of punishment uh, the uh, vice admiral, the three-star who was in charge of all naval forces, was given an administrative letter of censure. Who, and he's actually retired, so the impact here is more minimal. Um, but he, this admiral uh, said he had no culpability for this multi-day effort and felt that this was uh, a political lynching, as he described. And then there goes on, 27 overall individuals were disciplined um, including the head of fleet maintenance, the commanding officer of the Naval Regional Maintenance Center in San Diego, the commanding officer of the vessel, the executive officer of the ship, and the head enlisted man, the, the master chief of the boat. 
uh, or ship, I guess, in this case. This is definitely not a boat. Um, so there were a lot of issues in this case. If you read the, the publicly available version of the introduction, or the investigation, rather, what this comes down to is that nobody knew who was in charge. And there were concerns early on in the firefighting effort that the there were some misguided priorities, but nobody knew who to go to, who to appeal to, to have that direction and decision overridden. And this just led to this multi-day effort to try and save the ship. This started as a relatively small fire and then rapidly spread to significant damage to the ship. So that was one example. The other one, that one you may be less familiar with, the second one I'm sure that you've read about, and here I'm referring to the July 17th story in the Texas Tribune, that <coughs> systemic failures in the Uvalde shooting went far beyond local police, a Texas House report details. That, of course, this is the school shooting tragedy uh, in Uvalde at the elementary school that resulted uh, in an 18-year-old massacring 19 elementary school students and two teachers on May 24th of this year. The, the article summarizes the Texas House report, which is a fascinating read on a number of levels. Um, but the headline, I think, tells the story that in total, 376 law enforcement officers descended upon the school, according to the most extensive account of the shooting to date. It says that better equipped departments should have stepped up to fill a leadership void after the Uvalde school's police chief failed to take charge. There's a lot of things to learn in this report that are valuable, not just for how we protect our children in schools, how we respond to active shooter, mass shooting kind of incidents, but also there's a lot to learn in this report about leadership and about the incident command system. And while I'm not going to cast any aspirations on anyone in particular, this investigation continues and, and there's a lot of obvious challenges here. At the end of the day, in an incident, someone, in an incident or crisis, someone has to be in charge. And the principles of incident command teach us that that person should, the person named as incident commander or as the crisis leader, as we might use in the private sector, it doesn't have to be the most senior individual involved in the response. It doesn't have to be the leader of the department that has primary jurisdiction in the location. It needs to be the leader that is best positioned to lead the organization, to lead the overall response to this situation and bring it to a successful conclusion. And that conclusion, of course, is you know, whatever the goals of that incident is. In a school shooting, that is about life safety and stopping the violent action of an individual or individuals through the application of lethal force or negotiation. But it has to happen quickly. And it only happens when we have effective incident leader leadership on the ground. There's a great case study and book around where I think this was done right. And that is at on September 11th, 2001 at the Pentagon, where we had an aircraft that hit the Pentagon. There were hundreds of people killed between the aircraft and individuals in the Pentagon. And what then transpired was a multi-day effort by fire departments primarily to prevent the fire from spreading, to extinguish the fire as quickly as possible, to enable the United States Department of Defense to continue to operate our military uh, 
following a massive, coordinated, organized terrorist attack. They did this by the local police department who already had an agreement with the Pentagon on how um, incident command would work in the case of a fire. And they proceeded to execute on their plan and follow the principles of incident command brilliantly. Most interestingly in the, in the book, the, 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 the seminal book on this from my mind is a book called firefight about the Pentagon fire. And the book goes into a lot of detail. Um, it's called firefight inside the battle to save the Pentagon. It came out in 2008. It was written by Patrick Creed and Rick Newman. The book is fascinating from the standpoint that you would think that the fire chief for that fire department would be in charge. And he was in the very initial response. Actually, one of his captains was in charge at first until he arrived and then he took incident command and the captain went on to focus on what he needed to do. Um, this is the Arlington County Fire Department, um, I believe was the, uh, is the department in question. But at the, at the a few hours, not, probably not even a few hours into the incident, the fire chief realized that he was not the best person to lead the response and that there would be pretty significant um, aspects of this response that he needed to coordinate with the county manager, with political officials, with his peers leading other agencies. So he handed over incident command to one of his assistant chiefs uh, that also had more experience in fighting these kinds of large-scale fires like this. And he spent the rest of the fight um, at the County Emergency Operations Center coordinating the support that the incident commander needed at the scene. We've learned a lot of hard lessons through incidents, often in the private sector. We've learned these lessons without having to go through the tragic loss of life that our friends in the public sector often experience in some of these situations that we're describing, firefighting at the Pentagon on 9-11 or the Uvalde school shooting response. At the same time, we need to learn from those lessons as well in the private sector as we think about how we structure effective crisis management frameworks and plans that leave it very clearly stated that someone is in charge. That's it for this edition of the Managing Uncertainty podcast. We'll be back next week with another new episode. Be well.